Well, today we finish our sermon series on speaking Christianese. I've had some great conversations come out of this sermon series as people have wanted to understand some of the words that we use uh, better. And today is Trinity Sunday, so I want to talk about the words we talk about when we talk about God. We use lots of terms. God, Lord, Elohim, Yahweh, Jesus Christ, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Trinity. But I'm convinced that a lot of Christians are, are not clear on what these terms mean. And when I hear people describe God, even, even not using these terms, but just describe the way they think about God, I, I often think, that, that's not the same God that I know. Sometimes people tell me that they are not sure that they believe in God. And and my response is often, well, tell me about the God you don't believe in. Because I think there's probably a pretty good chance I don't believe in that God either. So let us take some time today to consider who God is. Now, in, in the ancient world, the gods were powerful beings who occasionally interacted with the world. Most of them were thought to be up high in the sky because after all, the, the sun and the weather and the rain was, was where you were dependent on for your survival, right? No rain, you get drought. Lots of sun, your crops dry up. And so the assumption was that gods are up there somewhere and, and that's where the thunder and the lightning are, so that must be where the gods are. And we better keep those gods happy so they don't keep their rain from us. They don't look down on us and get mad. Um, and so the idea was, let's go to high places so we can be closer to the gods. And we'll make sacrifices to those gods so that when we make a sacrifice, the smoke will go up and the gods will know that we're happy with them. And, and, and in different places, in different regions, you had different gods because you wanted to keep the local gods happy. And there were some big gods, but, but there were also all kinds of local gods. Now, when the Israelites developed, it marks a real change in how religion is understood and practiced. Okay, because, for instance, when Abraham was called to leave the household of his father, his household would have included his family gods. And so, in the, as the Israelites start to follow this God and start to write down, the, the poets started to write down their experiences with this God, um, their views became radically, radically different. Now, if we look at early portrayals of God in the Bible, they, they tend to have a, two, a couple characteristics. First, they tend to be portrayed as like a powerful human. Okay, if you look back, God walks around in the garden. He plays in the mud to form Adam. Okay, he meets with Moses face to face. We call this anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism. Anthrohuman, morph to make into. We do the same thing, by the way, when we treat our pets like people. Okay, when you have a conversation with your pet, that's anthropomorphism. You're making your god, you're making your dog like a human being and giving them human characteristics and human traits. We often do the same thing with God, and particularly early on in the scriptures. Now, you got to also understand that early Israelite writing about God tends to see God through the Canaanite gods, okay, the gods of all the other people around them that they're familiar with. Okay, in fact, the, the, the word God in Hebrew is the word El. El was one of the Canaanite gods. Okay, El was kind of the father god, the head god. 
Okay, um, El was really important, but El kind of gets overshadowed then later by a god named Baal, who's the storm and the war god. Now, the Bible also calls God Elohim, which is actually a plural of El. And, and so there's a lot of debate among scholars. Is this because of what um, in, in ancient languages they would sometimes use what you might call a rural, a, a, um, a, an important we? Okay, a um, a royal we. So whenever I whenever a king would make a decree, he might say we decree, kind of like we like our administration, all of us, my people, my rule declares. And so to call God Elohim is that referring to God as that, or or remember in the, in all these other religions, uh, gods were plural. There were gods, groups of gods. And so, um, so maybe the Israelites call God Elohim even out of this tradition of there being multiple gods. Early Israel, my point, it, it does not seem very monotheistic. In other words, they don't seem to worship just one God. They have a lot of trouble with that. Even the Ten Commandments say, you shall have no other gods before me, which almost implies, like, after me is fine, <laughs> right? Like, like, it almost implies... That, there's, that, that God is the most important God, but not necessarily the only God. This is a struggle, I think, the Israelites have in the Old Testament. They keep worshiping other gods with God. Okay, They keep worshiping uh, Baal or Asherah, which was a female god, sometimes looked at the wife of God, uh, as the wife of God in ancient worship. Even as Moses is getting instructions from God, the Israelites at the bottom of Mount Sinai, what are they doing? They're making a golden calf. But, but what Israel starts to do from Moses onwards is more and more of a push to have only one God. Moses even gets a name for this one true God. At the burning bush, Exodus chapter 3, Moses has this interaction with God. It says, Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, they, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am, or I am. Hebrew word there, Yahweh. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people, the Lord, I am, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So Moses gets an actual name for God, not just a generic term like El, which just sort of in Hebrew means God, but Yahweh. And Yahweh is a very interesting word. Whole books have been written about this word because it's actually a verb. Okay, It actually is based on the Hebrew word for being. So it could be translated I am. I am who I am, as you just read the ESV do. It could mean I am continuing to be. I mean, it's a strange, strange word that becomes the personal name of God often translated in your Bibles as Lord, and it's Lord with all caps. There's another word for Lord. It's the word Adonai. And it's just Lord in the general sense. Now, we don't use the term Lord anymore for, like, your king or your master or your, like, authority figure. 
right? But but even a couple hundred years ago, you might call somebody who was the, the ruler of an area a lord, okay? It's just generally the term lord. In your Bibles, if it's the word Yahweh, it's caps, all caps. And if it is Adonai, if you look in your Bible, it'll be a capital L-O-R-D, though, will be all lowercase. For example, if you pick up your Bible when you go home, or you look on your phone right now, at Psalm 8-1, it's going to say this. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Well, well, how repetitive is that, right? But if you look closely, the first Lord is all caps. The second one is lowercase. So that's what it's actually saying is, O Yahweh, our Adonai. O Yahweh, our Lord. Now in the Old Testament, there's all kinds of combination words that get made um, when we put these together. So the general word for God and the, and the name of God, Yahweh, sometimes combine to make different words. So you might say El Shaddai, that may be one you've heard before. It means God Almighty. If, if it says Yahweh Elohim, it means the Lord is God. Yahweh Nisi, the Lord is our banner. Now Christians also tend to use this word Jehovah. And I, I just want to, I've said this before in sermons, uh, but yet Jehovah is actually a historical error, not a word. Okay, well, the Israelites weren't allowed to say God's name in vain. And so just to be on the safe side, the tradition became, let's not say Yahweh at all. In fact, uh, a, lot of the, uh, a lot of religious Jews to this day would be bothered by the fact that I'm saying the word Yahweh. And so what they would do is they would write the vowels for Yahweh, which actually go right to left, not left to right, uh, the, the consonants, I'm sorry, they write the consonants, but Hebrew has no vowels. So what they would do is put the vowels, or little points, for, for Adonai. And so the reminder was, when you read this, make sure the, the word, the Bible says Yahweh, but you make sure you don't say Yahweh. You make sure you say Adonai. And uh, when you put the consonants of Yahweh to the vowels of Adonai, you get this word Jehovah, which is kind of here to stay for a lot of Christians. You won't hear me use it, but I, there are some times. I love this song, for instance, Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah. And so I use that one. But really, Jehovah is, is not a word. Okay, notice two things about this language for God. First, notice that the language exposes two sides to our understanding of God. Kind of like two sides of a coin that we need to be, keep balanced. On one side, you have the idea that God is general. Okay? God is L. He's just He's God. He's like everything. He's everywhere. He's in creation. He's throughout the world. That we live in God as a fish lives in water. But God is also described not just as an it, but as a you or a who. God has a, is a personal and has a name. Okay? In theological terms, we would say God is transcendent. In other words, he's not tied to creation. He's not the same as creation. He stands outside of creation with his own sort of personhood. But he is also imminent. In other words, God is also everywhere, interacting with the universe. He's not just in nature, but he is in creation. See, we get into problems when we focus on God either way. If God is Yahweh with a name and a personal distinction then we can fail to see God who's at work in the world, to catch his fingerprints on our lives. He can feel like a God who is far off, maybe trying to judge us, right? Or trying to catch us doing bad. 
If God, though, on the other hand, is in all things and a general Adonai or Lord of our life, we can miss out on a personal God that is reaching out to us for relationship. So we need to look at God both sides of that coin. So, so first, feel that, tran- that, that tension between transcendence and imminence over God of everywhere but also of somewhere, of personal God and yet universal God because God is both those things. But second, let me make a very important point that I've been sort of tinkering with, but I want to make really clear to you, is that when I read the Bible, I see the Bible as a progression of a deeper understanding of God. In other words, what happens early on is they see God through the lens of the Canaanites, and they see God through the lens of what it means to be human. But as the Bible progresses... Okay, I, I'm tempted to use the word if there's an ev- evolution in the understanding of God. But that gives a whole other context that I'm not necessarily trying to bring. But, but you understand a progression, of a step-by-step, that people get to know God better. Not that God changes, but that people get to know God better as the scriptures go on. Um, this is important because it, what, what it shows is that all the time, we're trying to describe God who is so not us. Okay, His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And that means that anytime we try to describe God, we fall terribly short of the reality. It's like my pet turtle trying to explain nuclear physics, right? Like, he can try, I guess, but he's never going to get it because there's so much difference. That's how we are with God. Like, you can try to describe God. And I think when we meet God someday face-to-face, if he has a face, right? That's an anthropomorphic sort of understanding. When we meet God, I think we're going to laugh at how feeble our little language was for God. But what happens is this God who is so not us, who he keeps revealing himself to us, so that he puts himself in language and in words that, that help us understand who he is, even though they fall terribly short. For example, I just said himself. God does not have gender. In a patriarchal society in which the Bible was written, he's referred often to as father in him. But I can show you plenty of scriptures where God is also compared to a mother and spoken of in female terms. See, we're trying to use language, but our language is always going to fall short. We can only use imperfect terms and incomplete metaphors when we start talking about God. And yet, here's the important thing. God continually reaches out to show us who he is. Like, okay, your piddly little brains, your piddly little language, we'll, that's, we'll, we'll do what we can with it. Your tiny little brains, let me, let me try to show you a little bit of the otherness of God. And that means we, we should have some humility anytime we talk about God. So you can think of the Bible like a telescope or like a spyglass that a pirate might use, right? And, and you, so as the Bible goes along, when the Bible starts, it's a very short spyglass, okay? And then as, as God reveals himself to us, okay, the spyglass goes out and it gets a little more focused. We can see more. And then, and then um, we, get, we get a relationship with after Exodus with Moses. And then we get David. And we, we, the spyglass keeps growing and keeps focusing so we can see more and more. Again, God doesn't change. But in the Bible, our understanding of God changes. And when Jesus comes, when Jesus comes, the telescope like explodes. Okay. All of a sudden we go spyglass to Hubble telescope. And we have a whole different understanding of who God is.
Because you see, in Jesus, we have this mix of God and humanity, of transcendence and eminence, of personal and yet universal, all in one being. God actually entered into humanity to take action to save the world. And so when we talk about Jesus, we use a number of terms. We, we talk about Messiah or anointed one that's Hebrew. We, we call him the Christ. That's basically the same thing in Greek. We call him Lord, which is the word kurios, which is basically the same thing as Adonai in the Old Testament. And this is where it gets really interesting in your Gospels. Jesus says multiple times, I am in the Gospels, particularly in the Gospel of John. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection. In other words, what he's saying is, like that general I am you had, the Yahweh, okay? I, I am showing you what I am is, okay? In John 8, 58, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So, so Jesus, so clearly in the Gospels, if you're looking for it, is, is portraying himself as part of El, of Yahweh of the Old Testament. He's basically saying, I'm, I'm, I am filling, fulfilling all this. I am. And yet, this is where the early church, their minds get kind of blown here. He talks about God the Father and submits to his will. He returns to the Father and then he sends the, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, his Spirit to be with his followers. And so the early church really has to wrestle with, like, how do we make sense of this? And so at first they say, okay, let's get the Jesus thing right. He's got to be fully human and fully God. And if we take away either part of that, it gets messed up. And I know one plus one doesn't equal one. But in this case, one plus one is one. And then, and then how do we make sense of how we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet they are all one? And I know one plus one plus one doesn't equal one, but in this case, one plus one plus one equals one. So they start using this word trinity. They start to say, well, these are all sort of separate entities. Maybe we'll use the word person for that. Again, imperfect language, but that they, we have a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that are separate, and yet one God. So it's not somebody switching between, right, taking turns, but it's, it's not three is that confusing? Heck yeah, it's confusing. It's not so much for our tiny little brains to get and our pity little language to describe God. And someday, I think we'll laugh at our little descriptions of God. God is so much more than our language and our understanding. We need to be humble as we talk about God because we are so flawed. And we're using our sinful lives and our sinful brains and our sinful language to describe God. But, but, that, but that doesn't mean... We can't know God, at least in some ways. It doesn't mean we can't describe God in more or less accurate ways. We can never master God. But because God is always revealing, always accommodating us, always trying to meet you and I, we can learn more and more. That's the powerful message of today, that we worship a God who accommodates, who bends down on his knee and starts to show us who he is, even though we can't possibly understand. He meets us where we are and helps us relate to him better, get to know him better. And he uses imperfect people and incomplete language and partial understandings to try to meet us. We have a God here who comes to Moses in a bush and on a mountain. A God more than creation, but also found there. The God who gives himself a name so that he can be related to. 
God who enters humanity with a body and a language and a time and a place, who dies to save his creation and sends his spirit to be with his people. So let me ask you a question. How do you think about God? What's your portrayal of God? Like, is God far off somewhere or is he close? Okay? Is is he ultimately like a sheriff trying to catch you doing something bad? Or is he really truly loving? Like, what's your portrayal of God? Is he close, distant? Is he spirit? Is he body? Is he a big cosmic vending machine? And if you just do the right thing, he'll give something to you. Or is he a loving shepherd? See, how you view God changes how you relate to God. So what is your image of God? How do you think about God? What language do you use when you pray? And most importantly, how are you getting to know God better? What are you doing in your life right now to make sure that my understanding of God, my relationship with God is deeper this week than it was last week and it's deeper this year than it was five years ago? What are you doing actively getting to to know a God who even though he is so far from you and I, stands here with arms wide open, wanting relationship. That's the invitation of today, to get to know God better, to, to think about your language and your imagery, realize where they're faulty, and let God, let God reveal himself to you more and more. May you see and understand more deeply the God who loves you enough to be reaching out to you constantly. Amen.